the What I Watch Tonight show. Do you like comic book movies? If the answer to that question was yes, then you've come to the right place. Welcome everyone to the fifth episode of Comic Cast from what I watched tonight. My name is Jared Charles of the Borough Reviews, and with me, as always, Matt Hudson from What I Watched Tonight. It's great to be here again, Jared. How on earth are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm really busy. What about you? What have you been up to? Um, it's work and movies for me at the minute. Uh, I know which one I prefer. <laughs> if anyone from work's listening, yeah. of course it's work, but it's movies really. Uh, <laughs> and teaching my two-year-old daughter as many Star Wars words as possible, which I'm pleased to say she's doing very well with them. Okay, well, kind of on brand then, I just want to ask you real quick, jumping off of that, are you more of a Star Trek fan or a Star Wars fan? I've always been more of a Star Wars fan. My uncle... Is a, he ha- somehow manages to straddle the line of both? He's a massive Star Trek fan, a massive Star Wars fan. But for me, it's always been Star Wars. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, see. I don't know the answer to yours, but I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess Star Wars is yours. Yes. Yep. You would be right in that. Um, you know, I never really got into Star Trek. I mean, I like it, what I've seen. You know, um, but I, it just never, it was never what I grew up with. Um, you know, unfortunately, I grew up with the prequels, so I guess that wasn't much better either. Uh, but, you know, when I was a kid, it was still, those prequels were still fun, you know, to me. And so that's what I had growing up, and that's what I watched on repeat all the time. So for me, Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, just quickly, did, did those prequels, you know, give you any kind of fear of sand? Fear of sand. You know, no. I actually, you know, you know that whole game that's that's going on right now, the floor is lava or whatever. We used to play that at recess um, because we had a bunch of sand everywhere in elementary school. So, no, it didn't really give me a fear, but we did play with it. Good. Well, I'm glad I didn't put you off going to the beach or playing the floor is lava slash sand. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, I suppose uh, we can move on. As the title may suggest, the show focuses solely on the capes makeup, spandex and drama of comic book movies. And each month, Matt and myself will discuss a different movie from the decades of choice and deep dive right into it. Matt, can you reveal the movie we'll be reviewing for this episode? I can indeed. This this month, we are talking about Galaxy Quest from 1999, directed by Dean Parasot. And starring Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Sam Rockwell, Tony Shalhoub, Daryl Mitchell, Enrico Colantoni, and Missy Pauls. A year since we first received transmission of your historical documents, we have studied every facet of your missions and strategies. You've been watching the show, Lieutenant. Historical documents. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. There were five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! Commander. Excuse me? I must speak to you. It is a matter of supreme importance. We are Thermians from the Klaatu Nebula. And we need your help. Hardwire the reactor core to overload. I would like to blow this troublesome vehicle to dust. 
Okie dokie, okie dokie. Uh, let's fire blue particle cannons full, red particle cannons full. Gannett magnets, fire them left and right, and let them run all shoots while you're at it once you toss that at him, killer. That should take care of old lobster head, shouldn't it? I mean, my TV guide interview was six paragraphs about my boobs and how they fit into my suit. Let's get out of here before one of those things kills guys. Don't put him out to the throat, it's vulnerable spots. It's a rocket that never thought of a spot. We need another one. Uh, you broke the ship. You broke the bloody ship. Well, screw that. We, uh, we pretended. We lied. Oh. Yes. You understand that, don't you, Mathazar? No. Never give up. Never surrender. Sons of Warband, you shall be avenged. Activate the Omega 13. So, Galaxy Quest, the movie follows a cast of a defunct cult television series called Galaxy Quest, obviously, uh, in which the crew of a spaceship embarked on intergalactic adventures who were suddenly visited by actual aliens who believe the series to be an accurate documentary and become involved in a very real intergalactic conflict. There's a lot of people that like this movie. Yeah. I didn't realize how many people did like it until I started looking at, you know, just the overall audience and, and critic reception. Um, it has a 90% on the tomato meter. That's incredible. It really is. It It, it is. Um, and, you know, when I first, uh, you know, we were trying to decide what we were going to do for this episode, I was like, oh, Galaxy Quest would be fun. And, you know, you know, it's kind of a niche. I don't know if many people would like it or not, but let's try it. And, uh, and then I looked at the reviews and I was like, oh, no, I was completely wrong. And it grossed. So domestically here in the States, it grossed 71 million and then 19 million worldwide. I mean, $90 million. This is 1999. So almost 20 years later, you can probably probably whack about another 50 to 60 million on top of that for inflation. So, you know, mm-hmm. 150 million for a niche film like this. Uh, with an opening weekend of seven million, so again, what ten million, twelve million opening weekend? That's mm-hmm. not a bad comeback at all for for this movie. And as you said, this is comic cast, and you may be thinking Galaxy Quest comic cast. But as my uh, most excellent co-host Jared has pointed out to me, uh, there was actually a comic, uh, actually still is a comic run of this film mm-hmm. or this uh, this franchise. Yeah. So unlike you know the other the other ones that we've talked about. Its life didn't start with a comic. It actually continued with the comic. So we haven't seen any more, you know, movie sequels to it or anything. But we have seen sequels in comic book form, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, um, there was touted to be a sequel, but uh, obviously with the untimely and very tragic passing of the legendary Alan Rickman, that was obviously put to bed, unfortunately, but... Um, you mentioned Star Trek and Star Wars. It's quite obvious where the inspiration for this film came from, and it certainly isn't Star Wars. No, it's not Star Wars <laughs> whatsoever. And, you know, as someone who doesn't, you know, watch a lot of Star Trek, for me, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of, I, I wouldn't say that they're making fun of Star Trek, but they're they are kind of playing on some of the, the ideas of Star Trek. And uh, it kind of makes me want to go back and just binge a bunch of Star Trek. Yeah, having having seen just what they spoofed from little Easter eggs, which I'd imagine the Trekkies at the time were going all in for, from little comments to to Tim Allen's mannerisms, uh, reflecting the Captain Kirk, 
to other little jokes and nods to Star Trek. There's so much, I'd imagine, if you're into Star Trek, which you could probably sit there shaking in excitement. And for people like you and myself who are sort of just researching it and then finding out the links to Star Trek, it does make you want to go back and just see how accurate it was. But, I mean, Patrick Stewart, William Shatner, Will Wheaton, or Will Wheaton, if you're a Family Guy fan, and George Takai of Star Trek fame have all given this a serious thumbs up. Slightly apprehensive when I went in, came out mm-hmm. just raving about it and said, actually, I think George Takai said it's chillingly realistic how of a documentary, obviously, with his real-life experiences. So, thumbs up from the actual Star Trek cast. Yeah, and we'll actually talk about, I'm sure, some of the little trivia moments in here <laughs> that um, they kind of imitated real life at, at some of these you know, story points in here. And so I thought that that was really fascinating because I was finding out stuff I had no idea was even happening back in the day, you know? Yeah, and I was finding out as well. Just just to also the kind of names who are in the frames for the roles, but Tim Allen got the main role, and Harold Ramis, uh, Egon Spengler, was uh, producing this film and actually left the film because Tim Allen was cast, and eventually, upon watching the film, kind of you know reversed his decision and was you know pretty damn pleased with Tim Allen. But it's little stories like that I like about a film like this, a sci-fi. I don't know what you've got. We've got a sci-fi comedy. Trying to find a genre for this was fairly challenging. But Alan Rickman doesn't like sci-fi films, but he was brought on by the scripts. Um, they want they didn't mm-hmm. want somebody who was known in sci-fi, but then they went and cast Sigourney Weaver. But I like there's there's a lot of interesting uh, behind-the-scenes facts about this film as well. Yeah, and like you said, yeah, Rickman didn't like it at all, but he couldn't resist it because of just how damn funny the material was i mean and for him to say that you know because even his character there's a lot of theatrical influences to his character right his character was a theater actor and so you know it kind of brings out the best of alan rickman in this role i think yeah and i mean the just the cast itself tim allen sigourney weaver alan rickman and sam rockwell as your top four is not a bad cast for any film even even today in 2018 if you had a film with those four, yes, including Tim Allen, you still you wouldn't you know you wouldn't turn your nose up and going to see you just with that talent. And God damn, I wish Alan Rickman was still here to be in another film like this. I know, yeah, that that would have been great. Well, if you're ready, we can actually start getting into um, some of the key plot details. Let's do it. All right, so um, we start with with Jason Nesmith and the rest of the uh, Galaxy Quest cast. Um, attending a convention. I think it's the 18th convention. Yep. Um, and so the show has actually been canceled long before the convention already. So the actors are just desperately looking for work. And they're like, sure, I'll book this gig at this convention. And it's a whole lot of fun. And um, what we notice from the cast, though, uh, because it's kind of it's kind of meta, right? You have Galaxy Quest as the title of this movie, but there's also Galaxy Quest, the title of a show, in that universe. And so it can be kind of confusing for someone who's just, um, you know, I would especially say this in reference to the actual date. In 1999, it was super meta for its time. And we were just coming off of, you know, other meta genre movies like Scream, for instance. So we were starting to touch on some of this meta humor that they play with really well here. Um, but yeah, the actors are desperately looking for work. And so they decide to go to this convention. Um, but it seems to me as if the 
actors were all turned off except for uh, Jason Nesmith, who um, is the character that Tim Allen's playing. He's kind of a jackass. <laughs> yeah, he's the absolute cocky commander. He turns up late, and when he comes on stage, he's got his arms outstretched like he's Christ. But it's great because you get to see the gang. As you mentioned, you've got Jason Nesmith, sorry, which is Tim Allen. If Sigourney Weaver plays Gwen DeMarco, Alan Rickman, Alexander Dane, Tony Shalub, uh, Fred Kwan, Sam Rockwell, this Guy Fleegman, who we're going to get into shortly, and Daryl Mitchell's Tommy Webber. And they're just a bunch of dysfunctional friends. They shouldn't get on, and that parts they don't. Like, so you've got the cocky command, you've got Alan Rickman's character, Alexander Dane, who's a Shakespearean theatrical actor, but he also has these mad panic attacks and has to be convinced mm-hmm. to go on stage and mm-hmm. we're hinted at a line there's one line which he won't say and um that's going to play it out through the whole film we do eventually get to hear what that line is but yeah as you mentioned the film actually opens with a with a clip of the tv series or the fictional tv series galaxy quest um which he, and it kind of and then sets that up and then we then get into i think it's called galaxy con but i'm not 100 percent sure but it's a proper um, this is back in the day before Comic-Con was, you know, the juggernaut it is now. And the, it, nowadays, mm. it's cool to go to Comic-Con. Back in 99, I'm not so sure where it was, and this kind of uh, sums up the crowd of the time, I think. Yeah, um, and it's just a lot of work went into the opening scene um, just because you have all of the fans that are, you know, cosplaying and stuff. So they really made it feel like a legitimate convention that you'd be going to today. Um, and especially, like, if you're a fan of Star Trek, like... This just should give you all the feels. Yeah, and there was going back because we're gonna, I think we're going to be going into quite a lot now. The parallels between Star Trek and Galaxy Quest. Apparently, Alexander Dane and Jason Nesmith, uh, sorry, Jason Nesmith's character is a complete takeoff of William Shatner because apparently that's what he was like. He would turn up late. Mm-hmm. He would be a diva on set. He would request he has more lines than anybody else. He wanted to be the main star. So it's kind of riffing off that a little bit as well. So I liked that kind of, like you say, this meta on meta kind of jokes that they're already throwing out. Yeah. Um, and so when, when Nesmith first, you know, enters the stage, you know, he's like you mentioned before, he's kind of, you know, posing as this Christ-like figure, you know, the savior of all. Uh, <laughs> and he, he tries to talk into the microphone after, after you know, Guy Fleekman is kind of just trying to get the convention, you know, on its feet and along because Jason was late, obviously. So he's trying to move the show along. And yeah. uh, Jason just has a complete disregard for, for everyone else's time. And you can kind of see that. And specifically when you're talking about um, kind of how William Shatner was, was acting back in the day, um, there's a scene where Jason, Jason does go into this restroom. And uh, he goes into a urinal because, um, or into a stall because all of the urinals are taken. And there he does learn that the fans don't have the best reception of him as a person. They like his character, and that's pretty obvious. But, but Jason Nesmith, as the actor, is not a good guy. Yeah, he kind of has the realisation that he's not really going anywhere. And maybe he's a little bit washed up because the fans basically say... All he's got are these cons, hence why he acts like this big jerk, because mm-hmm. the acting jobs have dried up, and he has that kind of like moment, epiphany moment where he's like really sitting there thinking, standing there thinking, oh crap, <laughs> these guys are true. And he then goes out to sign uh, autographs for the audience, and he's gone from being very happy-go-lucky and very show-off to very introverted, and he gets a bit angry at one of the fans. 
Yeah, one of the fans uh, is trying to ask a very detailed question about you know the schematics of the show and and how how the ship particularly was working. And um, Jason doesn't doesn't care um, because he's kind of down after what he heard in the restroom, which by the way um, was reflected upon a real life event of uh, William Shatner, who kind of had the same experience in the restroom overhearing fans. Um, and so I thought that that was really neat. But yeah, he kind of snaps at at these at these fans. The giant fans who are who are just trying to nerd out and have fun and you know we're we're not really liking jason off the start here um and it's pretty obvious that neither are the fans um but after that after he snaps at those fans um who are going to come back at a later time in the movie and play a crucial role uh a group called the thermians approach nesmith and ask for his help in defeating an enemy um, unaware that they are really aliens, because you know he's kind of in his own head. Yeah, they've got they, these guys turn up in full kind of, well, they're decked out in black, and they've got this very strange monotone voice, and you kind of thinking, are they real or are they? Well, are they real? You know, what I mean? <laughs> are they actual <laughs> aliens from another planet, or are they mm-hmm. just a bunch of cosplayers who really, really get into their craft? But we find out that they are actual aliens from another planet. But they've got a fantastically strange way of talking, which at first I thought this is going to grate on me very quickly, but it didn't. I ended up growing to just laugh my ass off every time um, Mathazar, who is the commander of the Thermians, played by Enrico Colantoni, every time he opened his mouth, he had this really strange dialect. And if you haven't heard it, go and check it out. But if, apparently, when he did it, everybody loved it so much that they just kept it in there because they hadn't thought of a voice for him. But yeah, so. Uh, DeSmith, Nesmith is approached by these aliens. He's still annoyed. He he brushes them off, and he he goes home and does what every um, actor at the bottom does. He opens up a bottle. Yeah, he opens up a bottle, and um, in kind of an arrogant way, he he starts reciting lines of the TV show because really he has nothing better to do. He's watching Meanwhile, on you telly. exactly. Um, meanwhile, you have Alexander and and Gwen who are kind of talking about what's what's wrong with him. You know, like we've tried to get through to him, but it doesn't work. We don't understand his mentality for anything. Um, and so, yeah, he hits the bottle hard uh, and wakes up with a hang hangover the next morning after a heavy night of drinking. And uh, the Thermians, um, that alien group that were previously at the convention asking him for help, are at his door because. Uh, he thought it was another gig, so he did agree um, to meeting with him again uh, at the request of a limo. Yes, I get to see him in his underwear. He's, he's grown a five o'clock shadow. He's hammered still in the morning, and he's just mm-hmm. <laughs> falling over himself just to just to get up. And as soon as he realises he could make some money out of this, or at least just get some kind of attention or adulation for half an hour, he's more than up for it. But just harking back to that scene between Gwen and Alexander, I was in stitches when I realised that Alexander, Alec McMahon, goes home and he's on the phone getting a beer out of the fridge <laughs> yeah. and he's still got his prosthetic makeup on. He doesn't take it off. Yep. He's yep. still got it. Um, and I loved that bit. And and really, you know, uh, that didn't, like, I didn't understand that as a kid. Why, why is he still wearing that? Because I, <laughs> I did watch this movie a lot as a kid. Um, but it, it really speaks to his character as an actor. You know, he's always method, right? He's yeah. always involved with his character. He is the embodiment of his character. It just made me cry with laughter when I watched it again recently. Also, just the idea of 
Alan Rickman himself walking around with his prosthetics and uh, it did make me chuckle but it's also quick to mention that um, Nesmith has a swell pad <laughs> to be honest he's got a lovely house but yeah he's picked up by the Thermians because they've witnessed the quote-unquote historical documents of the crew which we know are the you know the TV the fictional TV shows that they did episodes the Thermians believe them to be real accounts of the crew's adventures and life so that's what they're going on so they uh, transport Nesmith up into their ship, which is a real-life replica of the uh, NSEA Protector, which is the ship that the crew used on their on their show. Nesmith still thinks it's it's all a dupe, and he just thinks he's got a bunch of crazy fans. And you know, at first, he, he, at first, he's kind of just draping along, and when he realizes that these guys are serious, he still you know plays up to his character, but he's not having any of it. You know, these guys, he's surrounded by these Thermians who kind of walk like penguins; they talk funny. Uh, and then um, they tell him that there's a big bad guy who's threatening their whole existence. Yeah, so there's this there's this really bad guy named Saris, and um, they do pull up, you know, a a screen with Saris on it, and um, and Jason kind of is thinking, wow, they're they're really going all out, you know, trying to trying to portray a certain scene here, uh, and he was like, you're you're doing really good, you know. Usually, I'm used to a garage with, you know, a miniature of the ship and, you know, a bunch of cardboard walls. So he's really impressed, but at the same time, it's not clicking. Um, and they're like asking him, you know, what should we do about this guy? Um, he's, he's a, he's a really big threat. And even, you know, having a conversation with him for the first time, Jason doesn't really understand the the severity of the situation. And so he's like, nope, kill him, fire all missiles. He's done. <laughs> don't really care and uh and so they do and he's like okay we're all done i got a gig to go to so i'm gonna go do that he walks back to you know the pods and he's like okay where's my limo and they're like what limo you know um they don't even respond to him really uh they just kind of disregard his comments um and then you know he gets he gets basically attacked by this gel um and he's not really sure what to think of that you know standing in this circle um, and it's at that moment where he's transported back to Earth through space. Um, that's when he realizes what he's in for. It, I love the flippant way he just sort of raises his hand as if to say, "Just fire, fire! Give them all, give them both barrels! Fire everything at this guy!" Just obviously not understanding that the the, the implications of what he's about to do. I love Tim Allen as a comedic actor, and I think he's so good in this kind of role. Um, I also thought that Saris. <laughs> the first thing I thought when I saw him was he's like he's like <laughs> he's like the Forrest Whitaker of the galaxy. Everything's very <laughs> over the top and very um, <laughs> very theatrical. Um, oh, I didn't and even I liked think it. about that. As soon as that's, I saw it, I just good. thought it's Saw Guerrero. It's it's Forrest Whitaker in every <laughs> performance I've ever seen him in, which isn't a bad yeah, thing. I must say. No, 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 no. Um, and and Saris is kind of one note, but that's the purpose of his exactly. character. He's not supposed to be anything more. Um. And, you know, they do really good um, practical work here with with just designing, you know, like the aliens, for instance, when they're in their natural form and Ceres even, you know, there are some real practical effects that go into creating that. Um, so that should be recognized as well. Yeah, I'm glad that they did that. Obviously, back then it was it, nowadays you probably have a mixture of mocap and uh, actual performance. But then yeah, it was all just practical effects which could either look really good or could go the way of like a Power Rangers villain thankfully it looked very good but yeah as you mentioned uh, Nesmith is 
sort of has this all over body goo transports him home and he sees space and the planet and the cosmos just before he's um, sent back home and at the time the rest of the galaxy quest crew are actually doing an advert uh, an advertisement and obviously sir alexander dane is (laughs) not happy to be there but again they are all just wondering where is nesmith why is he showing us up why is he such an idiot you know we we are the ones who are having to look like goons here but um he turns up in the middle of the shoot and he's saying look guys i've seen space i've seen aliens we've got a job to do come with me and i'll show you and of course they're rational human beings they're not going to have any of it surely yeah um and it should be noted too that um during this whole interaction when he's trying to get everyone else on board with him and trying to explain everything he has a run-in with that super fan that we met earlier in the movie um and before he actually left the ship mathazar gave him um a communicator that that could you know travel uh, the cosmos and um so he bumps into the super fan and they actually trade communicators um which i mean it's very evident by the way you know the camera angles are cut there um that that's what happens like um there's no question about it and so when he's trying to onboard everyone uh <laughs> he's like look look they gave me this and he takes out the communicator and all of the rest of the cast <laughs> brings out their communicator as well and they're like yeah we we've got one too what do you mean um, and so they think that he's just completely gone off the rails, like he's delusional, he's gone mad, um, and they're not listening to him at all. So they actually get ready to leave, and, um, and you know, Fred's kind of like, do you think he was talking about a job? Like, is it a job? And they all just kind of look at each other for a moment, and they're like, we need a job. And then yeah, they leave the van to go follow <laughs> him. So, uh, you know, it just shows kind of uh, – that's another subplot that I think really works here is just the whole side plot of them being actual actors um, and just kind of what that in, entails, being an actor, you know, trying to look for work constantly, um, always doing, you know, these publicity stunts that you're not really wanting to do. Uh, so there's there's an extra layer there of it just not being, you know, like this space opera comedy. I when I saw watch these kind of scenes, I did think back to recent cons and thought everybody on stage looks so happy, and they generally genuinely look happy to be there. You see the DC panel, well, the Marvel panel, like the Infinity War, everybody was just buzzing to be there, and all the other uh, panels as well. And then I looked at this and thought, oh, I wonder if I wonder if there's anyone who goes to these cons who actually thinks I really don't want to be here, but I ha- I'm contractually obligated to do it, like these guys, because when they get in the van, it's they're. They're kind of, yeah, all doubting him, of course. Until, as you mentioned, Fred kind of thinks, well, it's a job. It's money. It could be anything. And they all just look at each other, even Alexander, and just get out and go and find go and find Nesmith because the Thermians have arrived to uh, to take him back on his command. Yep, um, and so they go up in the ship, and uh, they're really traumatized with that space travel, uh, except for Fred, who... Didn't seem to be phased by anything at all. No, he seems to be quite. He seems to be quite happy about it. But yes, everybody is. They're, they're transported to the ship, and they firstly, yeah, they've just travelled through time, space, and God knows what else. It's starting to dawn on them. Hold, maybe, maybe Nesmith isn't actually crazy at all. So they're, they're shaking. Mm-hmm. They're, they've got these strange aliens coming towards them with these different tools. They can't move. Nobody's got any idea what's happening. Turns out the aliens are actually the Thermians in their natural thought form. Uh, and of course, this is when they start to think, what the hell is going on? 
Yeah, yeah, and they're still not sure. They know that what they've just experienced is completely unusual, and and so they do have that level of knowledge anyway that it didn't seem like Jason had, you know, when they were transported up the first time. Um, so they are instantly aware that something's not quite right. Um, but you know, eventually they discover that the ship is real, uh, and of course, even though all cannons were fired at Saris earlier, he's not dead. Yeah, you don't kill the bad guy. You don't kill the you don't kill the Forest Whitaker bad guy straight away. Yeah, he's um, Saris is still alive, and put it politely, he's very angry. He's not happy at the fact that these guys have just opened both barrels on them, and in re- in retaliation, he sends a barrage straight back at the protector, causing massive damage. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and again, you know, they're they're still really just panicking. I mean, I mean, it's just the look of fear in everyone's face because they're like, we're, we're just actors. What are we doing here? You know, um, and Saris has his eye patch now, too. It should be noted, uh, which I think was a brilliant touch. Um, how did how did you feel about that costuming decision? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yes. Um, and so they were struck pretty hard on the ship. Um, you know, and and beyond that, you know, they try and go through this minefield. Um, and the whole minefield chase sequence was very tense, right? Um, these mines have been around for, for years upon years. Um, and so they've just been kind of sitting stagnant. And of course, Tommy isn't the best pilot because he's never piloted anything before. He's just working off of muscle memory. Um, so he's running into every possible mine that he could possibly hit. Um, and so the ship takes a lot of damage, uh, and then they're out, um, a power core. Yeah, I think it's also uh, quick to mention that when the cast, uh, the, the the gang are transported onto the ship, they actually assume the identities of their uh, television on-screen persona. So Tommy was the he was a child pilot in the show. He's now obviously grown up, but he is you know seen by the Thermian by the Thermians as the pilot, just as Nesmith is seen as the commander, and Gwen is the lieutenant who's. Basically, he's a communication officer. She's just there to relay exactly what the computers just said. So they all have their personas, and Guy has joined them. And Guy is—he was basically crewman number six on the show. He was on episode eighty-two, and he died on that show. And he's still worried about dying. And he's his fear is fantastic. He's, he's so funny. He based Sam Rockwell based his portrayal on uh, Bill Paxton's from Alien, Alien, sorry, and how. Just Bill Paxton just goes off the wall in fear mm-hmm. and hysteria. So Sam Rockwell based it on that, and he's the whole film is just concerned and f- f- uh, freaking out about dying. So yes, they're going through the minefield. That's all he can think of. And the mines are magnetic. So whereas Tommy's not doing a very good job at all of dodging them, the fact that they're magnetic as well just makes it impossible. And the ship, the ship's basically sort of like ninety five percent completely totaled. Yeah, and it should be noted as well. Uh, Sigourney Weaver said that every time she put on that that blonde the blonde wig, um, you know, of her character, that she instantly felt her IQ drop. So I thought that was pretty <laughs> cool too. Because yeah, her whole job, and it it, it is really sexist. Um, and they they kind of touch on that too, you know. Um, and recently we've had issues with this, you know, with other comic book movies. I remember Angeline Evangeline Lilly just had a question, you know, when she was touring for um, Ant Man and the Wasp about how she fits into her suit and, you know, like all of this stuff. And um, (laughs) there's actually a comment at the beginning of the film, you know, when they're at the convention about um, this press junket where 
uh, she was asked, you know, how how did her boobs fit into the suit? Um, so they're playing off of that um, and just really how sexist, you know, show writers were back in the day and still are, actually. Yeah, you do have to kind of wonder, why, why on earth would you ask somebody that question anyway? You know what I mean? I guess, I know we mentioned it on our Batman Returns pod where we mentioned, obviously, um, Michelle Pfeiffer in that suit, which basically looks like has been painted onto her. But, to, you know, to ask somebody, like, how did your boobs fit into a suit? Come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially you're promoting the film. Like, what are you doing asking about that? Um, yeah, no, uh, but I just thought that there's slight commentary here that's just really on point and funny. Uh, and, you know, to your response about about Guy, the character of Guy, um, I thought that that would get really tired really quickly, um, him constantly being fearful of death and always, you know, kind of whining and complaining about it. Um, but same uh, as it was in Aliens with Bill Paxton, you cannot get enough of uh, of Sam Rockwell as Guy in this movie. Yeah, it there's this this that's a testament to the writing and the performances because I mentioned the Thermians' voices getting I was worried that they just wouldn't be funny, but as the film went on, it continued to be funny, and the same with things and Sam Rockwell and any of the other characters because obviously they are playing essentially spoof slash parody characters, and they you run the risk of you know running out of steam. Thankfully, with a cast uh, as competent as this, it was probably not going to happen and thankfully it didn't so yeah um sam rockwell was fabulous in this film academy award winner sam rockwell is fantastic mm-hmm. in this film i completely forgot that he was in galaxy quest until he won that award this past oscar season um and i was like oh wait i know who that is i completely <laughs> had forgot that he quest. was in galaxy quest um which is just great um so the reason why we bring up um guys kind of fear towards dying um, is because they go down to this nearby planet in search of a power core, and they bring Guy along, who initially at first wanted to just stay on the ship because he was worried that he was going to die if he went with them, but then he was worried that he was going to die if he stayed on the ship. Um, so it's kind of no matter what he does, he feels like he's going to die. Um, so he goes down there with them, and you know they kind of have a rocky landing. It's not the best. Uh, the, the planet is relatively quiet, and... Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, and the the you know the pilot Tommy he is able to land the ship, um, but then they immediately open the door and guys kind of freaking out. He's like, "You don't know if there's air out there. Like you you don't know anything about this planet. Why are you just opening up the door so freely?" Um, and then you know you get this great kind of stick moment where um, Fred's kind of just sniffing the air and he's like, "Smells fine to me." And so they all walk out there um, in search of this power core, and they run into a few issues. Yes, they do. Um, I like the fact that they came out and they actually worried about the oxygen. So I read somewhere today, actually, that in uh, Star Trek, they were always very worried about the atmosphere of the planet, whereas some like Star Wars, they just jump off the Millennium Falcon and they're like, great, trees, water, everything's awesome. They don't even think <laughs> about the atmosphere. So I, I like that kind of... Uh, nerdy sci-fi touch but yeah they come off the ship and um, they realise they're not quite alone in this rocky terrain that is there's these sort of strange little green aliens who uh, emerge from a cave and they do their best to try not to uh, disturb them but come on we're not going to have we're in an action sequence somewhere and in order to try and get around them 
or I try and distract them so so Nesmith can get to the power core. They decide to reenact one of the episodes, to reenact one of the scenes from an episode, and of course it's going to be episode eighty-two. Yeah, uh, which is the one um, where Guy actually does die, and so he's <laughs> freaking out that they were trying to devise a plan from the episode that he was he died on, um, and so you've got his comedy. He's just going off the walls, and and they're all pretty level-headed about this whole thing, which kind of surprised me. Um, they're just like, we need to get a plan, get in, get out. We need to go home. Uh, and guys more worried about dying. Um, but you know, the whole sequence when they're on the planet, you really get a sense for how they work as a team. Um, even though they're super opposite of each other, like everyone works so differently and they all have different worth work ethics. Uh, they really form this team that kind of is, is symbiotic. You know, they work as one almost. Yeah, they, they are the team but they still have that kind of friction where Nesmith is still the hero, if you will. That he needs them, the rest of the gang, to distract the aliens whilst he goes to find the power core. Um, doesn't work out all that well because the little aliens find him and um, eventually, because they get the core, but he's then captured by the aliens who beat him with a rock. And they're chanting something and nobody can work out what it is, but eventually we get a translator on and, they're sh- and the aliens are chanting rock, rock, rock. Um, and we find out that the rock is actually a massive rock monster, which is something that Shatner wanted on the original Star Trek series. Um, so we have we have a fight. We finally get a fight. Is Nesmith, who is the commander and the hero, is up against a massive rock monster. And again, this is they need to employ tactics from one of the episodes to to try and fight this monster off. But they also have a teleporter, which has never been used before on the ship. So they're going to have to try and test out whether they can get him on board. They test it on an alien and it uh, <laughs> doesn't go all that well because the alien is turned inside out. <laughs> He's just dying in absolute agony in their ship. Um, but yeah, the rock monster fight, they get it. They decide, uh, Nesmith says, look, you know, you've you got to save me. Just get me, just try me in the teleporter. I know it's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. Uh, so eventually it's um, it's Fred who gives the order to basically do it. And he's teleported into the ship. And he's fine, just as the rock monster's about to uh, have him for his lunch. Yeah, uh, an interesting side note there. Um, uh, Nesmith's shirt does actually come off during that <laughs> fight sequence, uh, which is classic William Shatner in Star Trek and when he's fighting anyone. Uh, so that was kind of a nod there before he's teleported up. Um, and, you know, so they're back up there. They have their power core and everything. Uh, but by the time they return, they find Ceres has taken over the protector again. Um, and this time, Ceres finally discovers that the Thermians have, n- like, no concept of, of fiction on their planet. Um, and so while they think that the crew of the Galaxy Quest, you know, through historical documents, um, has has been able to defeat all of these different enemies in the universe, uh, Ceres understands that it's just a show. Yeah, the... Um... Mathasar is has been captured by Saris and is being tortured by him in this most awful looking way where he's kind of like he's an electrical prod which kind of transfers Mathasar from his human slash alien form into this monstrous bulbous alien and then back back to his human uh, looking form again and it's that moment yeah where Saris it's a kind of you know classic villain gloating scene where he gets to kind of get his one up over the heroes 
he has, he gets to capture Madhasar and then tell him, look, these guys you're relying on, they are just actors. You know, come on, Nesmith, go ahead, tell him. And Nesmith has to tell Madhasar that yes, it's all make pretend, it's all make believe. They're not, you know, they're not real adventurers and space fighters. And um, even though it's a it's a fun space comedy sci-fi uh, adventure, I still felt. Just a little bit bad for Mathazar as he's trying to comprehend just what's happening. I felt a lot of bad for Mathazar. I mean, I, yeah, no. Uh, and really, you don't expect that from a movie like this, you know? Because um, it does suck for him. As he's dying, he learns that everything that he's worked for and everything that he's looked up to in his life isn't real. It's all make-believe. Um, and that's his. That's going to be his final moments before he dies. And so that is super depressing. And to add that into you know this comedic space opera that it is, um, it, it's kind of jolting almost. But the good thing um, is, uh, and I guess not good yet. Um, Sarah Sarah sets the self-destruct sequence on on their ship and leaves to go to his ship. And so he leaves a like protective guard on the ship to watch over the crew before you know it's a sacrificial guard for that matter before the ship explodes and kills the entire crew and you know the rest of the Thermians. Uh, but um, Nesmith and Dane are able to figure out a way to to stop excuse me to stop the self destruct and to find a way um, to you know defeat the rest of the uh, sacrificial crew that's on board. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning as well that in terms of the Thermians, this the the all that is left on the ship is all that is left of their race. So mm-hmm. there's what I don't know, fifteen, twenty maybe tops of the Thermians on the ship, and that's all that's left. So in that moment where um, Mathazar's being tortured and is about to die, as if everything you just mentioned, he's also having to come to terms with the fact that this is it now. Everything his whole race has believed in is about to be null and void and extinct because they believed a lie which is uh which is you know quite heavy and is <laughs> very sad and tragic but of course you're not gonna they're not gonna have them uh kill off Mathazar. Uh, maybe maybe not just not not just yet to not give any spoilers away just yet um but yeah they 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 overpower the guards and they free the others and alexander he goes off with with quellen who is uh sorry quellex sorry who's uh patrick breen uh, he also goes off with Rain Wilson, whose debut in this film was Lank. And they go off together. You've got Nesmith and Gwen, Sigourney Weaver. They're going off. They're going to, they have to try to find a way to yeah, stop the sh- to get to the Omega-13, as we find out. And during the during everything in this, because we actually mentioned that the Thermians are also being kept in a, in a locked room, an airtight room, and their oxygen is taken away. So they are dying. So all of the race of Thermians are dying. Yeah, everything's going, you know, balls to the wall here. But in the ruckus, they managed to, Dane manages to, you know, save save them, get in there, manages to use his super strength to give them some oxygen. But in it, Quellek is shot by one of the guards. And uh, it's here that he finally gets Alan Rickman, sorry, Dane Alexander, to recite this line, which we haven't heard throughout the whole film. And the line is, by Grabthar's hammer... You shall be avenged. 
And we get that. And there's a longer version of it, too. Um, but that's the main gist of the line. And we get that from from Alan. Uh, sorry, from Alexander Dane in this really intimate moment between him and Quillick. Because, um, again, uh, right before he's dying, Quillick kind of kind of explains to Dane that he's been a father figure for him, you know, growing up uh, because he hasn't had one. So it's kind of this intimate moment. Again, we're getting in this movie that's not supposed to be like that. Yeah, but it's not played for laughs either, which is... Um, I like mm-hmm. it when comedies do that, or uh, films like this do that, where it's clearly just like a send-up, but they allow themselves to have those moments, emotional moments, without you know feeling the need to put a joke in there which undermines the the emotion that is being shown. And even when uh, Dane utters the line, yeah, by Gravthar's hammer, <laughs> by the sons of Warvan, you shall be avenged, it's done... Uh, it's not done for laughs. It's done for this poignancy, and mm-hmm. I I liked that. But yeah, that gives that kind of weight to that moment, uh, and it also gives a chance for Alexander Dane just to go Wolvie berserk on the guard. He goes he goes after him. He's after some blood. But in the meantime, yeah, Nesmith and Demarco they've got to travel through the bowels of the ship to shut shut off the sequence. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, on the super fan whose name was uh, Brandon, who's also played by an actor making his debut, Justin Long. Mm-hmm. He is. Uh, they use the communicator to get in touch with Brandon. He's at home in his room, you know, surrounded by Galaxy Quest memorabilia. His mother's telling him, "Look, go put the bags out. Go put the trash out." Um, which he he can't do that because he's too busy, you know, dealing with Galaxy Quest matters. So they they contact him, and he's the one who navigates them through the ship. Yeah, and it was a really interesting sequence because it's nonsensical almost. Why are all of these different parts of the ship there? Um, they're not there for anything more than uh, to be used as a plot device. And so they're kind of, you know, they're kind of making fun of that um, with these kind of space operatic shows like Star Trek, Star Wars. You know, why are these things the way that they are sometimes? Um, and it's nothing more than just to give the audience something exciting to look at um and to kind of cringe at almost uh but yeah so brandon helps them kind of navigate the rest of the ship um when they're going to shut off this sequence um and it's during that that we get our first look at the omega 13 uh which is just kind of breathtaking and yet we still have no idea what it does for sure there are a few fleeting lines uh, where Brandon's kind of explaining a couple of the different theories. Um, one of the theories being that that Omega-13 uh, will destroy everything in the universe in 13 seconds, uh, which is very grim. Um, or uh, him and his friends actually believe that the Omega-13 is used to reset time back 13 seconds. Yeah, the Omega-13 was first mentioned right at the beginning of the film, in mm-hmm. that clip of the episode shown at uh, GalaxyCon. And yes, it's the commander, it's Nesmith, who kind of mentions, you know, we've got to find Omega-13. Then it cuts off, so it's this big mystery, what's Omega-13? And it's hinted at during the rest of the film that that's what Saris wants. Saris wants Omega-13. And the Thermians, they're asking the Galaxy Quest crew, what is it? And they're like, we've got no idea. Nobody knows what it is. And as you mentioned, Brandon... Being the super fan he is, uh, as is still prevalent nowadays, has theorised and speculated till probably probably till he falls asleep every night about what the Omega Thirteen is, and they've come up with their own ideas. But uh, as as going back to what you said about those traps, that it, it's it's so true. Why on earth would they have? They're called the Chompers, which mm-hmm. is just those series of 
uh, massive mechanical arms which come from the left to the right and sort of clash crash together. They come from the ceiling to try and squash you. A bit like the moment in Attack of the Clones with, you know, in the droid factory. Why, why they got that for? It, and Sigourney <laughs> Weaver has her chance to have an also breakdown at the moment. She, she's like, why the hell have we got to go through this? And they had mm-hmm. to dub out her lines to make it PG-13 rather yes. than R-rated as well. But what I noticed about that scene with Sigourney Weaver is she's just having fun. We know Sigourney yeah. Weaver from films like uh, Copycat and, of course, Aliens and all the other wonderful films she's done. But just to see her yeah. with this ridiculous blonde wig on, just having this OTT breakdown was so much fun <laughs> to watch. But, yeah, but yeah, Brandon's the one who's got to explain the plan to them. And there's a hilarious moment halfway through where just as they, you know, just as they're about to get to the Omega-13, <laughs> you cut to planet Earth and Brandon's rushing out into the front yard, putting the trash out very quickly, trying to explain to his mother the severity of the actions that she's forced upon him. He's having to leave the mm-hmm. Galaxy Quest crew as he's putting the, the garbage out, which I thought was a fantastic scene. He has to run back very quickly. So, um, yeah, the Omega-13, it's... Uh, very it's a fantastical looking thing should we call it like mass and it has a bigger meaning to the sh- to the film of course but before we get that uh we have nesmith leading an attack on saris's ship yeah so uh they devise a plan um pretty good plan at that because uh, tommy has gotten better with his flying skills and his piloting abilities so he's able to now navigate the minefield to try and attract all of the different minds um, behind the ship and then play a game of chicken with Saris, uh, which I thought was great because, you know, at first they don't really explain what they're doing, right? They, they just say, oh, we've got a plan. And you kind of can speculate what they're doing. It's not hard to, to figure it out. Um, but for Saris, he's like, well, I, I don't understand what you're doing coming at me like like in a game of chicken because I'm a I'm a military general. Like I'm going to win. <laughs> like you have no reason for doing what you're doing. And uh, yet he is quite surprised when they reveal that they're carrying a whole bunch of mines behind them, uh, which I, I'm surprised that he actually didn't see that coming just from his background. Um, but it worked well. Uh, they do end up destroying his ship, so they succeed in that mission. Yeah, I like the um, I like the having the mines mean something more than just you know destroying the the ship uh, earlier on mm. earlier on in the film, the protector. Um, I, yeah, I like the idea of chicken because when I was watching it again, I'd forgotten about that. So I I just realised I was watching it, and they're both you know uh, speeding up, increasing velocity at each other, if you will. And I'm thinking, what what are they going to smash into each other? Yeah, and then he then he says, "Oh, you know, we're carrying magnetic mines," and he you know dodges out of the way, and the sh- they the mines attach the Saris ship and blow it to Kingdom Come. So, you know, as far as you're aware, that's it done. The bad guys have been defeated, and somehow the Galaxy Quest crew have actually <laughs> succeeded in saving the Thermians and killing the bad guys. But uh, it's that's not the final twist in the tale. No, um, so Dane is actually looking at uh, the schematics, and he's like, you know, there was a surge right before Saris's ship, you know, exploded. As they're all celebrating, they're not really listening to what he has to say. They're like, oh, that's kind of weird, you know. Um, and then, you know, Fred comes up to the command deck uh, and starts pointing guns at people, and they're, you know, Nesmith 
in particular is kind of confused. You know, he's like, Fred, what are you doing? You, you know, you can put an eye out with that thing. Um, and then he just shoots him. And it's one of those moments where you, you know, they, they kind of put that line in there from Alexander about the surge from Sarah's ship, but that's not the immediate problem that you're thinking about. You're, you're asking yourself, why would Fred all of a sudden do that? You're not really concerned about Sarah's, you know, he's, he's dead. Um, and then, you know, Fred continues to just shoot everyone. Um, but of course it isn't, it isn't Fred at all. It's actually Sarah's. Yeah, I like that. It's almost like a throwaway line when it's mentioned by Alexander. It's mm-hmm. kind of like there was a power surge. There was a surge of energy from the ship. And as you mentioned, that's kind of overshadowed. And as you're watching it, you're kind of so caught up in the fact that how on earth have these guys won that it's just another scientific thing to say from somebody on board a ship. And, you, and obviously mm-hmm. Fred comes in, you're like, oh, cool, there's Fred. Yeah, and he holds everybody up and he just opens fire on everybody. Uh, and anyone, the only one who doesn't die is Guy, who's been co- co- constantly complaining all film uh-huh. about yeah. dying. <laughs> and I noticed that again yesterday before I even did any kind of further research. I was like, they haven't killed Guy yet. He's the only one who's been go- talking about dying. He's the only one who's not killed. But um, yeah, yeah so we've, it's Saris in that surprise attack. And if we go back to what uh, Brandon was speculating about, speculating about the Omega-3 about reverting time because they do say they telegraph it massively when you watch this bit and then think back and they I think it's the commander says or it's Brandon one of the two says you it reverses time 13 seconds and it's Gwen who says 13 seconds one uh, you know you're not going to be able to change much there and it's Nesmith who says you know you might be able to change one significant moment in time and you kind Mm -hmm. of think well maybe that's going to play into it. And obviously when you see this moment, you know, it's going to play into it. So we, Nesmith is kind of dying and he manages to crawl over to the Omega 13. He finally gets to activate it. Yeah. uh, And so he does activate Omega 13 and you're kind of thinking there for a minute, but does it revert time? What exactly does it do? Because we're still not sure. I, I mean, you know, we have a pretty good idea, but there's still that level of intensity there that is present. Uh, but to their benefit, it does actually revert time back 13 seconds. Um, and so we go right back to the start of Alexander's line talking about the surge from Saris's ship. Um, and that gives Nesmith enough time to realize that he just, you know, reversed time and or reset rather. Um, and that gives him enough time to attack Saris or, you know, who looks to be like Fred before he can actually kill anyone. Yeah, it's the longest 13 seconds I've known as well. But they did have yes. that. Um, they did have the killing spree in slow motion. So that is, it was a slow motion 13 seconds. But yeah, Fred comes out with the gun. Nesmith subdues him. And the rest of the gang are trying to, wondering what the hell's going on. So they're pulling uh, Nesmith off Fred. And it's um, and it's the Thermians who actually who actually you know stop Fred. Uh, I say quote unquote Fred. It's Malazar, I believe, who nails yep. him and knocks yes. him out. And it's then as as he hits the ground, we realise it's it's a big reverts back to Saris, and they realise what Nesmith was doing. And that's when we realise they actually have won the battle. Now they've subdued Saris, and they're all alive. So it's party time. Yes, it is party time. Uh, but before you know, they try and go back to Earth. Um, they realize that not everyone can go back to Earth. Um, they're going to have to separate because 
the the atmosphere of Earth can't handle all that mass. Mm-hmm. So they do separate with the Thermians who, you know, they still want want the whole crew to stay with them, but they understand, you know, that they have to separate. Um, it should be noted, too, that at this point, they still do think that <laughs> it's a TV show. He thinks that everything that Jason just said um, beforehand, you know, when Saris was forcing him to explain what was actually going on, he still thinks all that was, was fake, which I thought was a really interesting decision to have there. He's actually then also he's also ordained as the new commander of of the ship. He's he's the new good guy. You know, uh, Nesmith hands hands the reins over to him. But yeah, I liked that that they went that way and they kind of kept that what happened before in the torture scene still had still resonated and had relevance and weren't just brushed under the carpet. So uh-huh. I liked that keeping the narrative that way and it was just a clever bit of writing. I think not genius, but I liked that. You know, it's just clever that they yes. didn't revert back to. Suddenly, Mathazar just realized actually it was all real. Uh, I like that they kept it that way. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, and it was a bold decision. I, I was, you know, doing some research beforehand a couple of days ago, and there are numerous people talking about what you can benefit from, especially like if you're a screenwriter, you know, screenwriting different, um, you know, plays and stuff for the first time. What you can gain out of going back and reading the Galaxy Quest screenplay just because. They really try and use everything they've established later on and not just have it be, you know, a one-off plot device. I mean, you can still make the argument that a lot of what they did was simply just create a bunch of plot devices that they could use at any point (laughs) in the movie. Um, But it's just a really clever piece of writing that, that, you know, upcoming screenwriters could really benefit from. Yeah, I mean, you can insert as many plot devices as you want in a film. But you still have to, yeah, have them pay off or have them mean something in the by the conclusion of the film. Otherwise, it is just a MacGuffin or just a you know just mm-hmm. a pointless piece of the plot. So yeah, I, I like the fact that they didn't really leave anything any stone unturned. They tied everything up with a bow. Things which were you know potentially telegraph lines were you know did play out to mean something. Things that maybe weren't so noticeable came to fruition towards the end. It's true, and it's amazing uh, when you think that people are asked to study the Galaxy Quest screenplay, and obviously that's no detriment to the the, the screenplay. It's just that, again, on face value, when you look at the Blu-ray cover or the movie poster mm-hmm. or just the idea of the film, that you wouldn't think that this is the kind of film where you'd be looking at the screenplay for tips on how to you know craft your own way of uh, learning the skills of the trade. Yeah, um, and you know it is just an excellent piece of, of narrative storytelling, really. Um, but with all that being said, we do land back on Earth eventually. Um, all of the rest of the crew is there, um, but we do have one new addition to the crew, um, and that's Fred's love interest that he's had throughout the film. We haven't really talked about her too much yeah. in here, but she she did play kind of a uh, you know not a substantial role, but she she was a bigger role in the movie that I feel like. Um, kind of got underplayed a little bit. I, I really wanted to see a little bit more from her. Um, but every everyone's back together. The crew's back, and she's with them now going to Earth. Um, so with the help of Brandon, they actually land at the convention. And um, it's amazing that they didn't hurt anyone because what are the <laughs> odds of no one standing in the path of that ship as it's crashing down to Earth? Are you trying to tell me that that's what took you out of the film? Uh, no, 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 no. That, that, I wasn't worried about that at all. It was just something I noticed. Um, it's, true. it's true. Yeah, they managed uh, to crash just at that exact 
right part of the convention centre. Nobody was in the right. way. They did take out a few cars, though, in the parking lot. So mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't. So whoever owns those cars, I hope they wrote them a check. But yeah, they they took out the convention centre, and of course the fans are absolutely loving this. They think that this is all part of the show. They because it's the news reporters are the saying, you know, we're at GalaxyCon, but the whole crew haven't turned up. Nobody's here, and the compare on stage is just having to try and riff as much as possible to try and keep the fans entertained. Who are, they're starting to get a bit a bit annoyed. But then the, the ship comes crashing through, and the, the cast, uh, the gang, all all stagger off. Obviously, they've just been everything that's happened in the film has just sort of hit them. They're staggering off, realizing they're back in the real world, but they're also then thrown back into their characters of themselves. So, yeah, they've gone from being real life versions of their characters to just being their characters again. Um, so that yeah, they come off the stage. And yeah, and as you mentioned, Laliari, who is Missy Pyle, which is the love interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's with them, and she was given more screen time because Sigourney Weaver was the only woman in the film, so they actually wrote her more into it. And her main contribution really was a yeah a strange tentacly tentacled sex scene with Fred, yeah. which you don't see anything obviously apart from a few suggestive tentacles. <laughs> but yes, that's kind of what she was there for. But it kind of you know bridging the gap between humans and Thermian, so Thermian rights. But yeah, she's back on, and Guy is. He's still alive. He's made it back to the convention, but um, somebody else is back. Is has also made it back to the convention. The unkillable one. Yes, he just doesn't go away. So Sarah shows his face again, <laughs> and he is really, really angry this time. He's had enough. Like um, his ship is gone, his crew is gone, everyone's dead. Um, he was defeated when he tried to, you know, kill everyone. You know, the third time, and uh, so he's back for more. And you know, it's. Did he have a weapon? Did he have just a knife in his hand when he came out of that ship? Because he didn't have a gun, did he? Um, he did have a gun. He did. Okay, because I was big thinking old he had gun, a... yeah. yeah. Okay, so back on the ship before they activated the Omega Thirteen, he had a knife. Then I couldn't remember which one was which. Um, so he has a gun and he doesn't use it right away. He makes it a point to you know kind of scream into the void again, <laughs> like he always has been doing, um, and. Uh, this gives Jason Nesmith an opportunity to, A, do his role on the ground that he's been doing the whole movie, um, but it also gives him an opportunity to show the fans that he's still got what it takes to be a commander, and he vaporizes Saris. So Saris is gone for good at this point, um, and the fans think you know it's all for a show, and what a show it would be. Yeah, they're, again, they are, they're in raptures. The commander's done what they've always seen him do on the television. He saved the day from the big bad guy. And yeah, Saris was unkillable. Three times they've subdued him. And finally at the end, it was, it's a bit like, the, well, up until last year, like the Washington Capitals in the NHL. He kept coming back for more, but would never win. Eventually they mm-hmm. did win, annoyingly enough. But um, yeah, he's vaporised. He's definitely gone this time. And the crowd are loving it. So yeah, the crew have gone from kind of these desperate out-of-work actors dining out on this kind of corny TV show they once did to becoming the living embodiment of their characters and actually becoming them. And it it's a great moment, like an arc for the film. It's not like, again, could you see it coming? Probably from the very beginning of the film. But <laughs> does it make it any less, you know, you know entertaining and, and good when it happens? It's really uh, fun to see it. And... We get a reboot of the show 18 years later after the last show, which is the same as the actual Star Trek show itself. After a break of 18 years, the show is back. 
Yeah, so the show's back, and we've got a couple new additions to the cast this time. So Guy, who was a one-name character, you know, he didn't have a last name in the movie or in the show when he appeared early on. Um, he has a last name now um, <laughs> at the beginning of the credits. Uh, so, you know, um, and we also have uh, we also have another character that's been added, which is Missy Pyle's character. And um, she <laughs> she's named Jane Doe because no one, you know, obviously <laughs> knows her name at all. Um, it did cross my mind. What are these producers and, you know, just the rest of the cast and crew thinking about having a girl that they have no idea where she came from on the show? And they're and they're kind of weaving that into the plot. I mean, how exactly do you come to that conclusion? I'm just curious. But anyway, and, you know, so you have this reboot of the show, and it's kind of nostalgic almost. You know, you've gone through this whole movie, which isn't long at all. Um, it's, you know, under two hours, and yet there is still a pretty significant nostalgia factor when they play those end credits showing, you know, the title sequence of the Galaxy Quest TV show. Yeah, it's not a long film at all. It's about, what, an hour and 40 minutes, basically. They managed to cram mm-hmm. an awful lot into it. But, yeah, we all know that these kind of shows like to live off their nostalgia and how when it's done right, there's nothing better. But, yeah, I like it. I also like the fact that it was originally shot in the 1.85 um, frame uh, widescreen format. Uh, sorry, frame yes. format. I liked that, and I went back to that. But, yeah, I liked the fact that it ended with the reboot of the show. They integrated the new characters. Going back to what you said... After 18 years, they could just say they found Missy Pyle's character at Jane Doe in a cave or something. They just brought her on the ship. That's how they introduced her. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was a good ending for the show, uh, for the show, for the film. Again, it was it was the happy ending which you're gonna you, you need you have to have. And I guess we've mentioned it before. It would have been nice to not necessary, but it would have been nice to see a follow up. You know. Almost, it's longer than eight. It would have been eighteen years later as well, pretty mm-hmm. much when the film was when the sequel would come out. So it would have been eighteen years after the first film. It would have been great to follow up the adventures of the gang after this film, but of course we're not going to get that, which is very sad. But yeah, so they end, so they start as out of work actors, kind of with this Galaxy Quest sort of hanging around their neck like an albatross, like a lead weight, and end the film, you know, fully embracing it. This is now their livelihood, having lived as their characters for a for an extended a little period of their lives. So, uh, I liked how it kind of bookends like that. Yeah, it's wrapped up in a nice little bow. Um, and yeah, I don't think that that lessens anything in the movie. You know, I don't think I would have wanted it to end any other way, really. Um, just because I I don't I don't know that I would want even the slightest kind of bummer of an ending of a movie. Um, I don't think it would have fit know, as well. Yeah, 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 I think so. Um, But I, I really liked what we got here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just wrapping everything together. It it seemed to uphold the movie like it's a movie now where I'm going to go back and watch it just to have fun. And just because I know that when I get done watching it, I'm going to be in a great mood. Yeah, I was just as you said that I was just thinking of this is the kind of film we don't have to we 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 review films. We talk about films. We're on we're on a pod about films. But this I was going to say this is the kind of film where you can just just trash all of that and just watch it for fun. But then you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on that people study the screenplay. So <laughs> what do I know about it? But it is one of those films where you can just have fun. The actors are having so much fun. You can just tell you've got Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman for God's sake. Two two actors who you do not 
put in these kind of roles when you think about them. But they're clearly having a lot of fun. Tim Allen is... Uh, I couldn't not get Buzz Lightyear out of my head almost every time he spoke. Um, yeah. You've got Tim Allen's just a fabulous comic actor. Sam Rockwell, he didn't become OTT. He's a great actor. And everybody else in the cast, Tony Shalab, Daryl Mitchell, Missy Park, everybody within the cast just looked like they were just having a great time, which is what this film lives for and what it's all about. Yeah, so... Um... With that being said, uh, where would you where would you put this film with the other films that we've watched? I mean, it's completely different. You almost can't compare anything that we've watched beforehand to this. Um, but if you had to give a ranking, what would you give it? I've been racking my brain about this since I've watched it. And even today on my journey back home from work, I was thinking about where do I put it? Because do you, do you rank it technically? Do you rank it? how the enjoyment I got out of it do you bit of, do do you do a bit of both i found this very hard so bef- originally we have the dark knight as number 1 that's going to mm-hmm. stay there then it was x2 then x men and batman returns and we both had the same uh, leaderboard now where would i put galaxy quest i'm keeping the dark knight as number 1 galaxy quest i think Cool, how many rough feathers with this ruffle? <laughs> I think I'm going to put it at number three. I'm going to have The Dark Knight, X2, Galaxy Quest, X-Men and Batman Returns. Uh, and I'm going to say this every show just to cover my ass. Nothing against Batman Returns. I high, hold that film in high esteem. But in this pantheon of films at the minute, I, it's, it's where it is. I put Galaxy Quest at number three, not because I think it's necessarily a better film than X-Men or Batman Returns, but I just had a blast with it. I just... What I took out of it, the fun, the enjoyment and the act of the characters and how much fun they were having. I liked the story. I just liked the film in general. I laughed during it. It did what it needed to do. And I felt, I guess if I'm going to rank it in, did I get more positives from this film? Yeah, I did. So for me, it's number three. What about yourself? This will be interesting. Well, see, uh, I agree with you on some things. You know, it's one of those movies where you can't classify it under you know like what we've been watching really you know the the whole superhero you know capes and spandex genre type of film because it's it's really not that so um i kind of went at it from the angle of what am i going to go back and watch more you know years later years down the road and so for me it's galaxy quest is one of those movies that i pick up probably every two to three years and I'd rewatch it. And every time, you know, I kind of just forget how much fun I have watching. it. And so for me, I'm going to put it at number two, right behind the dark Knight. So I'm even putting it above X two. And, and like I said, it's nothing against any of those films. You know, you, you mentioned how, um, you know, Batman returns is still a great movie. Like I have no, major issues with that movie at all but just on terms of enjoyment galaxy quest is number two for me right behind the dark knight that is a that is a superb superb surprise which i didn't expect uh, and i hear i like the angle you came at because as you mentioned where where do you come at this from because every, obviously every film is different some have more similarities than others or, or some are more comparative this one isn't but if you're going to rank it i this is our first. This is our first deviation, of course. Now, so our leaderboards look different. Um, number two. I how, how often have I seen this film? 
once every two, probably once every, blimey, six, seven years maybe. And again, not because I don't like it, but it's uh, it's one of those films that I never really think about. But when I do rewatch it, whether it's mm-hmm. on television or I just go back to watch it, I find myself enjoying it more and more. And again, again, as as we get older, sorry to say, and we see more films and we see more of these actors in other roles, it's good to go back and watch a film like this. And just as I mentioned about uh, Alan Rickman and Sigourney Weaver. The roles that they've become synonymous with and iconic with. It's fun to go back and watch a film like this where they're just having fun. So, uh, yeah, number so it's number two for Jared, number three for me. Um, I guess for me, some of my favourite moments were, as I mentioned, were that scene in the before the Chompers when they when Nesmith and Gwen are trying to get to 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 stop stop the uh, shutdown sequence, and. Sigourney Weaver just has a mini breakdown and they're having to navigate through this most ridiculous of um, mazes. Why would you have it in the ship? I I found that funny. Mm -hmm. I liked Sam Rockwell's character during it. And the moment where Alan Rickman has his prosthetics on, even though he's back home, um, there's a moment as well uh, after the first mine, uh, when they go through the mine uh, field, when they traverse that, Alexander is pissed, man. He's not happy. And Nesmith says to him, where are you going? And Alexander just turns around and says, to see if they've got a pub, which is just a <laughs> wonderful British thing to say. <laughs> yeah. And I know it's biased, but I liked a lot of Alan Rickman's lines. I, obviously, not all of his films are excellent, but I think he's such a great actor, and I really liked him in this film. But they were some of my favourite moments. I mean, I could probably go on off on a tangent, but can you, what about you? A hand-picked uh, moments from Jared? Yeah, so um, like you, the chomper, the chomper scene is, I think, one of my favorite scenes in Galaxy Quest. Um, particularly the line where they've they've finished the sequence, they've gotten through the chompers, and Sigourney Weaver is like, "Whoever wrote this episode should die." Like, <laughs> yeah. and I, I mean, and I know that they they cut back, you know, a bunch of dialogue and they cut out a bunch of things and reshot the movie because, you know, test audiences didn't like the rating that they were going for initially. It was dark, um, wasn't it? Yes, it was it was much darker um, and people didn't like that. And so I think, you know, I, I kind of am lukewarm to reshoots. I understand that they're they're definitely needed, like you need to plan for reshoots. Um, but my issue with reshoots comes in when you shot the whole movie and someone doesn't like the movie. You're you're you know, you're one that does like the movie because obviously it's your movie that you just crafted. Um, but test audiences don't like the movie. So you go back. And you basically scrap the whole thing and start again. That really rubs me the wrong way. A lot of the times um, that just happened with the New Mutants recently. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things where when I hear a movie that has had a test screening and then has kind of just canned the whole entire movie to go back and change everything, you know, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. But I think it was the right move for this movie. Um, among my other favorite moments, um, the scene with Brandon and his mom. Um, that whole sequence that they have, I think, is one of the most memorable parts of the movie because it's so vastly different from what's going on with you know the actual storyline being presented um, to the audiences. And then you know finally, I that moment where um, Saris you know escapes his exploding ship and enters their ship um, and disguises himself as Fred and starts shooting all of the people on screen, that was pretty horrific to watch. Even, you know, watching it several times over and over again, um, they don't really show too much, but you do get some blood in there. 
and you're, you know, it's a, again, it's just a really intimate moment with the characters as they're as they're almost dying practically. Yeah, it's kind of like your Infinity War moment. Um, spoilers mm-hmm. for anybody that's seen that one of the most successful films of all time, where you know you, you, the characters are dying around you, they're disintegrating, but you kind of know they're not really going to die. But at the, but at the same time, whilst you're watching it, you're still processing what's happening. Same with the Galaxy Quest crew. You're seeing them getting gunned down after everything they've done, and whilst you, the rational part of your brain probably thinks, you know, there's, they're, they're going to find a way out of these. You're still obviously watching it on screen. And as I say, it's still pretty horrific seeing the heroes just get slaughtered like that. But just back, to, just quickly as well, if, on the reshoots, if a test, order, test audience doesn't like your film and you reshoot it, what happens if the test audience don't like the reshot film? What do you do then? Reshoot it again? So yeah, on your point, I I understand that. <sighs> you know you need to play up to the audience because then in the end of the day you kind of live or die by what the audience thinks about your film but there is mm-hmm. that kind of fine line that if you do reshoot the majority of your film and a, and a new test audience still doesn't like it where does that put you? It puts you in a strange situation and for this film yeah I uh, a darker tone maybe it would have worked but we're never going to know but not mm-hmm. it wouldn't have worked with the level of comedy and levity we had in this film if it was a straight-up kind of sci-fi action film, fine, be dark. Yes. When, a, when it's a film like this, he, he didn't need it. He didn't need, I'm going to sound like a an old man now, but he didn't need the cussing and the swearing in this film, necessarily. It, it wasn't that kind of film. He didn't need the gore and the violence and the bloodshed. You can have sort of comic moments of it happening, but I don't think it really would have suited that kind of level of, and I don't, I don't like the word darkness, but that kind of darkness. I don't think it would have fit in this film. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think, you know, <clears throat> if they, you know, let's say, you know, there is an alternate universe, the multiverse is real, and uh-huh. Alan Rickman is alive and well in another in another one of those timelines, and they were to go back and do a sequel to this, you know, with the full cast and everything. I don't think that they could get away with doing just, you know, the level of comedy that they did today, or back sure. in 1999. Um And, you know, it's just one of those things where I think if you were going to, let's say, reboot or, or, you know, make a make a long sequel to the original Galaxy Quest, it's one of those ones that they would probably almost have to go that route, unfortunately, into the more dark themes, into the more, uh, I know you hate this word, uh, but gritty storytelling. (laughs) Um, They would almost have to go that route because I think that it would be too over the top nowadays to do it any other way. Yeah, I do hate that word, but I also have to use it because it's the only word that describes that particular um, necessity for it. But yeah, I think they would. You see it in horror films like The Evil Dead and Fright Night. They start off as kind of like, not comedy horrors, but they are kind of B-movie type hits. And they get remade and they're very much brought into the modern times when they're, you know, straight up horrors. And it kind of takes away from what made the original films what they are today. And the same, I agree, the same probably would have to happen with Galaxy Quest, what made it so great back in 99 and still today because it belonged in that time period. Nowadays, yes, this isn't a spoof film, but those kind of films, you know, nobody, nobody goes, nobody, there's no clamour for them anymore. But Mm -hmm. if it's done, if it's done right as a comedy film, yes, but I think, yeah, they would have to, you know, raise the stakes for this 2018 world that we live in now where we can't just have a bit of fun. There needs to be stakes. There needs to be um, gravitas. There needs to be something to cling on to. You can't just have fun anymore. So, yeah, I think it would possibly suffer 
from being remade. And another phrase I don't like, but I'm guilty of using too much, is, you know, it didn't need to be, it didn't need to be made, it didn't need to be a sequel. But I'd certainly go out and watch it if they were, if they did ever, if they had made one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been interesting to check out. But, you know, I at the moment, I like Galaxy Quest for what it is. And like I mentioned before, it's going to be a movie that I keep repeating. It was one of the few movies that we had on VHS back when I was growing up. You know, VHS mm-hmm. was a dying breed when I was, you know, younger. Um, but it was one of the few movies that we still did have on VHS. And I remember just watching it over and over and over again. Um, I watched that. I watched Titanic. I watched the first Lord of the Rings. And then, you know, obviously something like Scream. I just watched those over and over and over again. So it's just one of those movies that I, I have a really nostalgia factor, you know, embedded in me almost for Galaxy Quest. So, um, yeah, I would I, I would be guilty of the same thing. No matter, you know, if, if a reboot or a sequel was going to do well or not, I would go out and see it just because. Um, but with all that being said, uh, do we recommend this film? Uh, I think I'm going to say yes. Yes. Um, I'm going to, uh, echo that, uh, that sentiment that you should (laughs) go check this out. If you want a fun time, a fun movie night, you just pop on a movie with the family, with your friends. This is the movie you go to. Yeah, for real nostalgia, hit hit Jared up and he'll give you the VHS. Watch it on yes. that. Um, if you remember, <laughs> trying to sort the tracking out on VHSs, and oh, I'm just nostalgic for the old videotapes. But yeah, if you want, if you just want a fun sci-fi film, a throwback, I guess you could call it now, with a great cast, having fun with a screenplay which gets pulled over by people a lot more intelligent than I am, then. Go watch Galaxy Quest. There's not an awful lot I didn't like about this film. Um, nothing nothing jumps out. I mean, did, is there anything you weren't particularly keen on? No, uh, actually, no. I liked everything, um, which is pretty odd. You know, usually there's something that I can nitpick. But even, even you know, the minor, not even really negatives. There, For me, there's nothing really negative about the movie. And I think that's what differentiates it from everything else, you know. Yeah, there's scenes that are potentially slower than others, and mm-hmm. which weren't as um, you know whiz bang wallop as some of them. But there's nothing in it which I sat there thinking, "Oh bloody hell, come on, wrap this up and let's move on." The, I thought the dialogue was fun. I like the characters, as I mentioned, the actors' performances, the the story threaded well together. They tied it all up as well. Saris coming back three times was actually, I mean, we were we were on a comic a comic cast. That's a pretty much a staple of comic books the villain just doesn't mm-hmm. die so uh, i liked that yeah I, there was nothing major which i didn't like in this film which um i'm always happy to say because i was like picking out what i don't like but yeah i'm pretty happy to report that not an awful lot was wrong with this film so yeah we both give it a recommendation it's number three for me in my leaderboard and jared's put it as number number two which is i didn't expect and i mean that in the best possible way and i'm glad that our leaderboards don't tally up now so I like going back and revisiting a film like this, which I haven't seen before, and then looking further into it, not just at face value, sort of like we've mentioned, the behind the scenes. What did the cast think about it? What were the, what was going on in the producers' minds? It, I love all about those kind of things. So yeah, having a blast. Yeah, I'm really excited for next next month too. It should be interesting to see where we jump off from this because this is kind of like the oddball of of what we've talked about. I think you know for the, for the longest time it was Batman Returns, but now we've talked about Galaxy Quest. So how are we going to one up that? Absolutely. Well, we're going to try, but I think that 
pretty much brings an end to the Galaxy Quest episode of Comic Cast. So, as I mentioned, it's been an absolute blast doing it. Thank you once again for giving up your time and your knowledge and your vast intelligence, Jared. Thank you as well for having me on. Not a problem. Looking forward to doing it again in one month's time. But before we get there, where can the world find you on the internet? You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at The Borough Reviews, and then on Twitter at Borough Reviews, and then you can also check out our website, theboroughreviews.com. Check them out for up-to-the-minute movie reviews, current reviews, old reviews, and just very good reviews. So check those out. You can find me, uh, you not YouTube, (laughs) I am on YouTube, but very slowly. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just search for What I Watch Tonight, and you'll find us on there. And the website, whatiwatchtonight.co.uk, for reviews and every episode of Comic Casts. On that note, you can find every episode on anywhere you can find podcasts. Now, anywhere. iTunes, Anchor FM, Spotify, uh, Pocket Casts. I could go Google Pod. I can go on forever. Find a find, find a podcast provider. We're on there. You can hear us now as you've already found us. So, yeah, thank you again for listening. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes. It helps the show out. And it's just good to hear some feedback from from the guys listening. And I know you guys do enjoy it because the, the stats say you do. So if you don't like it, don't tell anyone and don't leave that review. But until next time from me, it's good to be see ya. And from Jared. Take care, everyone.